0: Welcome to the sermon podcast of Redemption Church. The following sermon is by Pastor Gary Alloway. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers will no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Do what is right and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. The word of the Lord.
1: Okay, so Romans
2: 13, submit to governing authorities. Is everyone excited? This is one of the most controversial passages in Romans, and we've already been through a couple uh, minefields uh, as we've gone through Romans. And you know, this is one of those we get into the issues of like church and state and Christians and government, and like whole semester courses are taught on this subject, right? And I get 25 minutes to kind of get us in and out of this one, so I'm going to do my best. This is a passage you're allowed to disagree with me on. Uh, if you want, like, let's keep talking after the service. I'd actually love to, like, have a two-hour discussion about this passage, in addition to this time we have of teaching here.
1: Um,
2: but before we dig into Romans 13, I want to take us on a little historical tour, and this is a tour that I like to call. Famous criminals of Christian history. You guys ready? All right, let's start. Our first two anybody know who these guys are? Yep, Dorothy Day on the left. Anybody know who the
1: person on the right is? Is Oscar Romero.
2: So, Dorothy Day is the founder of the Catholic Worker Movement who. They literally fed like thousands of people and clothed and housed thousands of people in New York City during the depression. She also went to jail uh, a dozen times um, for being a pacifist, for protesting nuclear weapons, for advocating for workers' rights. She uh, was in prison a dozen times. On the right is Oscar Romero, who was Bishop of El Salvador in the 1970s. And when a right dictatorship arose, he stood against it. He stood with the poor. He stood with the people who were being murdered uh, by the government. And for this, he was murdered in cold blood in 1980. He was also declared saint in the Catholic Church in 2018. How about these next two? These two might be a little bit more recognizable. Who's that on the left? Yeah, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And who's that on the right? Dr. Okay. King. Yeah, Dr. Martin Luther King. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, of course, theologian and pacifist who opposed the government in Nazi Germany. And for his vocal opposition, he was arrested, held in a concentration camp, and ultimately killed in 1945.
0: Martin Luther King,
2: of course, the leader of the civil rights movement in the United States, was imprisoned 29 different times. From everything from organizing boycotts to once for driving 30 miles an hour in a 25 mile an hour zone. If we want to go further back in history, we can go to our medieval era. Uh, I'll, I'll give anyone a million points if they know who of these two
1: people are. John No, good guess.
2: All right, no million points given out today. The million points will be withheld. That is Jan Hus on the left and William Tyndale on the right, two of the most influential reformers of the Middle Ages. Both of them were um, actively opposed the abuses of of the clergy, the abuses of the leaders of the day. And for this, uh, both of them actually actively fought to have people be able to read the Bible in their own language. Both were given opportunities to repent To submit to governing authorities, if you will, and both refused to do so and were burned at the stake. If we wanna go back even further, we'll find pictures like this. This is the early church, right? Who were called to submit to governing authorities, right? To bend the knee to Caesar
0: and say that Caesar is Lord. And when they
2: refused, they were publicly killed in the arena as criminals, as those who broke the law. If we wanna go back even further, we have these famous guys. We got Elijah there on the left, Jeremiah in the middle, Daniel on the right. All three of whom actively disobeyed the governing authorities. Elijah was in exile court, Jeremiah got thrown in a cistern, and Daniel was
1: meant to be eaten by lions. And of course, we can't complete our tour of famous criminals of Christian history without talking about Jesus.
2: Jesus who called Herod a fox, who called the ruling Sadducees a brutal vipers, who was tried and executed as a criminal for being unwilling to do what the authorities wanted him to do.
1: So in light of this cast of characters,
2: many of whom we would consider our heroes, right? Many of whom we would consider, like, the best of Christianity, one of whom, of course, is the reason for our very faith.
1: What the heck do we do with Romans 13? Let's read it again. Let
2: everyone be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted,
1: and those who do so will
2: bring judgment on themselves. For rulers who hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear to the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to govern. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes, if revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Do uh, you see our problem? How can a passage like this exist in the same world as all these saints? And how can it even exist within the larger canon? If we just flip a couple pages over, the book we studied in the fall of Revelation says that Caesar is, uh, derives his authority directly from Satan. And should be resisted with all that we have, even if it costs us our lives? And in Paul's own writings in First Corinthians 7, it says the present order is passing away, or that our true citizenship is in heaven, or that in 1 Corinthians 15, every rule and authority is being done away with so that the reign of Christ may come. And of course, it doesn't help that this passage notoriously, infamously, is kind of like the favorite passage of dictators and tyrants, right? Like throughout history, if you wanna see injustice done in the name of Jesus, Romans 13 is probably not far behind. So it's a passage we need to like learn about. It's a passage we need to wrestle with. It's a passage we need to know what to do with, because basically anyone who ever wants to, to advocate for real social change will probably have disperse these passages thrown in their face at some point. And you'll need to know like what to do with it. So again, I would love to have like two hours to talk about this, please come talk to me afterwards. But since we have 25 minutes, here's kind of the summary of what I think Paul's actually said in verse 13. Government comes from God, but government is not God, and we belong to God. Got it? Government comes from God, but government is not God, and we belong to God. So let's dig into that a little bit. First of all, government comes from God. It might be fun to complain about government, right? That's kind of our sacred right as Americans to complain about the government, you know, even more than that, paying our taxes. But the only thing worse than a flawed government is actually no government. Like there are actually places in the world, right, where government doesn't function, and it's not exactly utopian. When there is no government, the strong dominate the weak, the corrupt dominate society, with the laws in the hands of the wealthy and powerful. And so government is given by God. Government is given by God for order, for safety, to protect the weak, to carry out justice. And we might complain about the government until someone we love is assaulted. And then we're very, very grateful right? that there is actually someone that we can call who will show up to do something. And so we should be thankful. So no matter how annoying government is, the alternative is worse. We should actually be thankful to God for government authorities, for functioning government that can carry out justice in the world. The book of Romans looks forward to the age to come when all kings will lay their crowns at the feet of Jesus. And there's always been this temptation to think that we're already there. We've seen this throughout Christian history. Sometimes this results in like bloody rebellions. Other times it's just Christians who like just want to ignore the law. But Paul gives us a practical reminder here, first and foremost, that until Christ comes back, we still live in a fallen world. And as long as we live in a fallen world, we do actually need government. So don't be lawless just because you're in Christ. Government comes from God. And so as much as you're able, follow the law. Got it? Good. Step one, good. Government comes from God. Cool. Government comes from God. God. And when we hear that, we might that might make us think that government is infallible or inerrant. But actually, when we say that, we actually need to realize that saying government comes from God means that it actually is below God, that it's not God, that it derives from God, and therefore it is accountable to God. And so part of what Paul is actually saying is saying to Caesar, like, Caesar's not God. It's actually very important. And this is a place we mess this passage up by thinking that what Paul is saying is that the governing authorities actually are essentially God, that they never get it wrong. Instead, like we said, government exists to carry out God's justice and order in this world. And when it perverts those things, it's actually dishonoring to God. And so what this means is that the rulers in this world never actually get blank checks. That's how uh, far too often how this passage has been used. But but it actually doesn't say that there, were, that, uh, that there are no blank checks for our, our governing authorities. They were called as servants of God to carry out God's plans in the world. And because our leaders are called by God, they're supposed to do the things of God. And when they don't, we are actually allowed to call them out. And so you'll see Jesus do this, right? Jesus calls out the leaders of his day and say, you're supposed to protect the poor. You're supposed to look out for the marginalized, you're supposed to protect the weak, you're supposed to uplift the people and care for them, but instead you keep heavy burdens upon them. You are not doing the thing that God has appointed you to do. And so if I dare to wade into contemporary politics, there is a
1: whole lot of stuff here
2: that we can say. But let's just take one example. Should Christians be pro-police? Romans 13 would say that police exists for a reason, and we shouldn't be anti-police, and yet at the same time, they don't get a blind check. It's our job to call them to carry out justice, and to call them out when they carry out injustice. Police come from God, and so we give them all the honor and respect that we, that we can that we should, but we never mistake them for God. We never give them blind reverence or allegiance or devotion. Does that make sense? Instead, we call them to be the servants of God that they are called to be.
1: This is the same with the president.
2: Whether we voted for the guy or not, we try and give basic honor and respect, but we also call them to do the things of God, to do justice,
1: to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. really hard to give honor and respect to, uh,
2: to a president we dislike, right? But I think if we can actually stay away from hatred and vitriol, and just like anger, it actually gives us a place to speak when we call that leader to justice. And it can be really hard to give accountability to a president we do like, right? We tend to turn our brain off when it's our guy and be like, no, 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 he's good. And we defend everything he does. But I think this actually calls us in the same way. Like, no, it's our job to hold him accountable, especially if we voted for him, that he is called to do the things of God. We're doing such a bad job in America, kind of flip-flopping, like being 100% against and then being 100% forward. And this passage actually calls us to something in the middle. Like, we give honor and respect, but we also call that person to do the things of God, whether they're part of our party or not. And as Christians, we never give ourselves fully to a leader or a political party. We remember that they are not God, and that circle
1: just goes only to God.
2: Lastly, we can actually be subject to governing authorities because we believe they are not God and because we believe that God is bigger than God. It's funny, the, the, the context of this passage, if you read it in its larger context, if you're here from Marjorie's passage last week, it says this thing about like, love your enemies and leave room for the vengeance of God. This idea that like, no, you can actually love your enemy because it's God's job to settle the score. And likewise, in the passage right after this, it's going to talk about Christ's return, and Paul says it's coming, and you can be sure that it is coming. The new age is coming, so don't sweat things too much in this age. So in other words, in both these passages, it's kind of saying like, you can be subject to governing authorities, even if they're unjust, because you believe in the God of justice, that you believe that God will correct these injustices, that you believe that God You don't need to take up the sword because that's God's job to take down unjust rulers. Instead, we are called to pray for our leaders, to pray for them instead, that they would carry out justice and be converted to the things of God. And in the end, we pray as Christ taught us to pray that God's kingdom would come. We might not realize like, when we're praying for God's kingdom to come, I think sometimes that phrase has lost its power, but we're like, we're praying for the day of the Lord like for Christ to come and like make things new. And we're actually praying for the justice of God to come. So this actually like applies directly to this. We're saying, God, we will go out in love. We will go out and cross. But we pray that you would come. And when you see the injustices in this world,
1: you would come and make all things new. Does that make sense? Am I making sense? All right. So part of
2: being subject to government authorities is believing that God stands over them, that they are not God, and one day all sin will be destroyed and the kingdom of God will come. Government comes from God, which means it is accountable to God. And as Christians, we actually pray for that. And then we surrender that to God. And that is where we're freed up to put away the sword and take up the cross. Amen.
1: And lastly, government
2: comes from God. But we do know always that our ultimate loyalty belongs to God. And when the law of government violates the kingdom of God, we are loyal to the kingdom of God. As Peter says in Acts 5.29, when he's demanded to stop preaching about Jesus, we must obey God rather than human beings. So there are actually times to disobey the government. In fact, that seems to be the majority voice in scripture in a lot of ways. It seems to say much more that our job is to be faithful to God, regardless of what the government tells us. But Romans 13 in this regard actually kind of acts as a check, not the trump card. It, it kind of stands there to kind of uh, keep us from getting away from this too much. That even when we're called to disobey, we don't do so in a destructive or rebellious manner. We don't do so in a way that provokes our enemies, and we don't do so in a way that is violent. In fact, when we disobey in ways that don't smell like Jesus, usually it ends badly. Usually the cause of Christ is actually marginalized in the process. And at best, best our voice gets dismissed, and at worst, our cause gets destroyed. So when we disobey, we don't do so in a spirit that's anti-government. Right? We do so in a way that is pro the kingdom of God.
0: We do so because we have a,
2: a, from Jesus a vision of justice, of life, and love for all people that compels us to move forward despite the consequences. We disobey because we love God and we love our neighbor. And that's what drives us, not being anti the governing
1: authorities. Does that make sense? And if we are persecuted or punished for this disobedience, we don't make a big stink about it.
2: We don't lawyer up. We don't call our favorite cable news station. We rejoice with Christ
1: because we have suffered with Christ.
2: Government comes from God, but our loyalty is to God. A Christian life that never involves any disobedience is probably not actually being faithful to Jesus. But when you disobey, do it for the kingdom and not to be anti-government and do so in a way that smells like Jesus. And if you disobey in a Jesus sort of way, in a way that reeks of the radical love of Jesus, your enemies will actually be put to shame and may actually be converted to the things of
1: There's a little context to this passage that's
2: interesting. Apparently, in the mid-50s in Rome, uh, the tax system had gotten so corrupt that there were actually active riots going on in Rome against the taxation of the Roman government. And some people think that's actually what Paul is immediately uh, directly addressing in this passage, which is to say, like, don't get caught up in that stuff. Don't get caught up in these tax charges. Just pay your taxes. And part of the reason he says that is because he knows that there's larger conflicts to be had. That when you disobey, make it count. Don't be lawless over dumb things.
1: Don't be lawless over things that don't matter. If you need to be disobedient, do it for the kingdom. First Peter four fifteen and sixteen says this: If you should suffer. It should not be as a murderer or a thief
2: or any other kind of criminal or even as a peddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name.
1: Government comes from God, but our ultimate loyalty is to God. Amen. So we would love to use Romans thirteen
2: as a trump but it's not actually meant to be that way. It's meant to be a check on all those other passages that call us to
1: be faithful to God above all else.
2: That there might be times to resist and disobey the government, but don't resist for the sake of resisting. Remember the government is here for a purpose and we still live in a fall. And when you feel the government is not doing the things of God, call them to do the things of God. Pray for them to be converted to those things and pray for the kingdom of God to come. And when you do feel called to resist, do so because you're a pro-Jesus, not anti-government. And do so in a way that looks and smells like Jesus. And no matter the outcome, you will. Now, all of this is kind of easier said than done, and it can be pretty hard to tease out in an actual scenario. So, I did come up with one just kind of practical hypothetical scenario to think about this. So, imagine next year the borough council, Bristol Borough Council, passes a rule that says no more outdoor worship gatherings in Bristol.
1: And of course, my favorite service of the year is Easter sunrise, right? Our outdoor worship gathering. So if Bristol Borough Council actually passed a law that said no more outdoor religious gatherings, what would we do?
2: I think option one would be to comply would be to say this rule was meant for the good of Bristol. We don't agree, but we understand why it was made. There are plenty of indoor spaces where we can have have this service. They're not actually preventing us from worshiping Jesus and celebrating Easter. But we could also let the council know that we disagree. But for the sake of unity, we won't fight this. And if possible, we could use this as an opportunity to get to know the council members more, to actually pray for them and share the love of Christ with them. And in our willingness to follow, we might actually get a voice at the table where we could actually change this law in the future and in a way actually build deeper and fuller relationships in the long run. And in our willingness to submit, we would pray always that Christ would be glorified in all that we were doing.
1: So that's option one. Option two, we could not comply.
2: We could say we understand why this rule was made, but we feel compelled to have the service. It's part of our tradition, and we need to obey God. And if you want to fine us,
1: we'll pay the fine. And if you want to arrest us, we'll do the jail time. We won't make a big stink about it. We'll just keep having the service. And if we suffer for it,
2: we will rejoice that we have suffered with Jesus And honestly, this is where some of those like burning coals on the head of your enemy thing comes in where it's like, if you really want to send police fans down to the river at 6.30 in the morning to arrest a
1: bunch of people singing hymns, be my guest.
2: And if that were to happen, right, I mean, basically, as you've seen, pretty much all the heroes of Christian history got arrested at some point. So if you ever get arrested for worshiping Jesus, you should kind of take pride in that. That's a pretty good mark to have on your resume. It puts you in some pretty good company. But again, if we did this right, we would never do it to be provocative or rebellious, but only to honor God. Never to stick it to the authorities, right, but to do it because we love God. So which one of those
1: is right Who likes option one who likes
2: option two the reality is like the bible would allow both right and that's actually matters and that's actually where romans 13 gets us in trouble where we think it's just like nope here's the rule here's what you always do in fact there is wisdom in both and how we would live it out with prayer and discernment and understanding the situation and seeing what relationships we have and so it would actually take seeking Christ to know which is the right way to go. Romans 13 is not a trump card, right? It's not always all all, no matter what. Instead, we should let it bounce off the rest of scripture and interact with it and dialogue with it. And then in prayer and discernment we figure out the best way to live it out. I know black and white rules are like a lot more easier to live out, right? A lot more easier, a lot easier to live out. But Romans 13 actually calls us to kind of put this on and live it out in prayer and wisdom and discernment and figure out how we respond to situations in ways that honor the kingdom of God.
1: And so at the end of the day, like all scripture, we understand Romans 13 through the lens of Jesus.
2: Who offered honor to authorities, but understood where their authority came from. Who didn't defy Pilate, but also said, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. We follow the Jesus who called out leaders who oppressed people, but never made it his mission to take down the government or be filled with bitterness and rage. We follow the Jesus who never breaks the law just to break the law, but will gladly break the law to heal, to redeem, and to save the brokenhearted. We follow the Jesus who never comes across as rebellious and yet has a vision for how this world should be, that he will pursue, even if it runs afoul of the authorities, even if it costs him his life. We follow a Jesus who presents a radically different view of the world, but tells us to get there, not by taking up the sword, but by taking up the cross. We follow the Jesus who will submit to Pilate and give up his own life, not because it's just but because he knows that God is truly bigger and God will vindicate him in the resurrection. We follow that Jesus, he knows that despite all the evidence contrary, the kingdom of God will come. And so this is our model on how to live in the world and our lens by which we understand this passage. Government comes from God.
1: So as much as you're able, follow the law. Give respect and honor to authorities. Pay your taxes. But also remember the government is not God. And at the end of the day, we answer to God. And so will the authorities.
2: At the end of the day, we walk in love and peace and in confidence. Because the kingdom of God will come and make all things new. Amen.
0: To find out more about Redemption Church, visit redemptionbristol.org.